Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22. And the last time we saw Jesus uh, speak in parables, he was really rebuking the corrupt spiritual leaders. Uh, he would speak to them directly and they didn't get it. And he would also speak to them in parables. Uh, and today in chapter 22, Jesus at this point of the scripture in Matthew is a few days away from his crucifixion. I mean, Jesus is just such an awesome example. And the more I go through the scripture, the more I study it, the Lord just shows me different things as the years go on. And I think I've studied that book and then he gives me something else. But what, I, what blows me away about Jesus is he was not distracted. He knew what he was going to be dealt. He knew that he was going to be tortured. He knew he was going to have the sins of the world uh, really dumped on him uh, so that we could have life eternally. That's how much he loved us, that he went to the cross. And here he's, he's lucid in his mind. He's, he's coherent. He's focused. And he was the ultimate person that didn't think of himself but thought of others first. So we just see, you know, he's, he's God's son. He's, he's God. He's um, he's got a clear mind, and, and you know, he still teaches these things completely undistracted. Now, if that was any of us, we'd be probably running as far away from Jerusalem as we could, but not Jesus. Verse 1, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. So in this parable, every parable tells a, a different story. But in this parable, we see really a, a diachronostic look through history. In other words, a, just a, you see the salvation microcosm in a parable, but basically what you're seeing is salvation from the very beginning of time to the very end of time, even in our future. So this is a picture of salvation seen through the eons or the ages. And we have to ask ourselves to understand the parable. What do the characters represent? Well, some of them are easy. The king is God the Father. The son is God the Son, or Jesus the Messiah. The servants, check this out. The first group of them were really the ones preaching salvation, and the suffering servant, the Messiah, had to be crucified prior to it happening. And we covered that the last few Sundays. In the Old Testament, Second Chronicles 36 says that the Jewish prophets were killed by their own the majority of the time, not from the outside. And we see a later group of servants come into this parable. And this is really a look at uh, God's servants, his prophets, throughout the different time periods. And what we also know is that the apostles, when they founded the church, when they were starting to build the church on the cornerstone that was Jesus, okay, uh, they also preached to the Jews. They were also evangelistic, and then the message went out to the Gentiles. The initial group of invited guests were the Jewish people. Right? They were the ones in Israel, if you look at a map of Israel or the world, they were the ones that were supposed to shine that beacon of monotheism, of the true God throughout all the pagan area. They were right in the center of really world history. Um, and they largely failed in that respect. So God is calling the Jewish people to their Messiah. He's calling the spiritual leadership. They also rejected. And basically, probably if they would have received, God would have said to them, listen, I've said this all throughout my Old Testament, Here's the Messiah, 
This is something we've always spoken about. Now let's go to the rest of the Gentile world and show them salvation. But what happened was there was largely a rejection, and then the message was taken to the Gentiles. Now the later group, or the latter group, we'll see, is basically anyone. Anyone. We're living in that latter group time period. Okay, now let's look at the, the pictures here. Verse 2, the son's marriage. Well, this could refer to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If we look at Revelation 19, we see that time in our near future where the saints are taken into heaven and there's just a great feast. What a great time that will be. And I love to eat and uh, I, I'm going to have an awesome time there. We can also look at this as just salvation through Christ. Now, whichever we're speaking of, we have to ask ourselves, so the son is getting married. Who's he getting married to? Many of you know. But let me just take Ephesians. Hold that thought. Let me go to Ephesians 5. And this is a great portion of scripture. It really speaks about the role of the, of the wife to the husband and the husband to the wife. And if you look at this role, the husband's role to his wife, you see a constant paralleling to Christ and the church. Now, some look at the wife's role and say, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. That must be really difficult. But the spiritual person knows that the husband's role is a lot more difficult. You're asking me to love my Heather, and she says wonderful things about me to everyone else, but I know I don't love her like Christ loved the church because I know what Christ did for the church. I try, but I don't think I'll ever achieve that in this lifetime, and I'm just being honest. But that is a role that God commands me as a husband to reach that high bar. So let's read this. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he, Christ, might sanctify or set the church apart and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he, Christ, might present it, the church, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it, that it should be holy and without blemish. Now that's interesting because if you look at the church, if you look at all of us as believers taken collectively, we still sin. We still have to be forgiven for our sins. We still have to come before the Lord. We still have to repent. But when Christ sees us, because he's, he set us apart, he's the reason why we get to be made more holy. He makes us look without spot or wrinkle. When I read the Bible, I look at myself and I know I'm a sinner. But when Jesus looks at me, he smiles. He goes, that's my guy. He loves me. He loves you as well. So you, you got to love what Jesus does for the church. And he presents the church, his beautiful bride, the church collectively, before the Father, before himself without spot or wrinkle. And then he presents the church to his Father in heaven. He says, Dad, look, look, at, look at her. Isn't she beautiful? It's pretty amazing. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and his flesh and his bone. For this reason a man, now he goes back to Genesis, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I seek I speak concerning Christ and the church. So what he's saying is you, you kind of see this relationship, this perfect picture of marriage between a husband and a wife biblically, but then the Apostle Paul says, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the example that the men are supposed to set through Christ and the church. This is a great mystery, how close he is, how much he loves us, how much he loves his church. 
So the question is, who's the bride? How many people this morning feel real precious, feel real spotless and holy? All right. That's, well, not that many. But you are. If you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are the bride that the Son is getting married to. Imagine that. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is part of it, and they want us in their family. They want us in a relationship. So now we feel unprecious. Maybe we think of, uh, maybe we have a physical ailment. Maybe we have pain. Maybe recently there's been a broken relationship, and we don't feel good about ourselves. But remember, we shouldn't figure out or we shouldn't look at God's love based on how we feel. We all have bad days, don't we? God's love for us is autonomous of how we're feeling and what's going on in our life. Understand that. And that's sometimes a hard thing for someone to really understand. And I would just say this, that probably one of the hardest things that I have to impress upon Christians is the fact that God loves them unconditionally and how much grace he wants to pour out on them. It's the truth. And I would say if you're a new believer, really pray about somebody, uh, an older believer, more mature, coming alongside of you and discipling you and helping you to understand these concepts. So verse 4, he says that the dinner has been prepared. The oxen and the fatling are killed. This is a picture of time is running out. Time is running out. And you need to get here because the feast is starting. And I would say to you, anyone here who doesn't know the Lord, there's no Jesus as their Lord and Savior, he's also speaking to you. You need to get here because time is running out. Number one, God's prophetic timetable is running out. We've covered a lot of prophecy the last few Sundays. Uh, we know that there's really no events that have to happen biblically before the Lord can come for his saints, or what we understand as the rapture. Look at the events in the world, and, and I call them the three ends: nukes, nations, and nonsense. <laughs> Nukes. Well, in World War II, they thought that was the world to either end or wars or was going to destroy the earth. They didn't have the technology yet until later on in the war. Now we have nuclear weapons, many countries, a lot of fissile materials missing through, uh, from some countries, that we have the ability, superpowers, to destroy each other and the earth that we live on. So that's plunged us into a very interesting time period. Two, the nations. A lot of Christians are looking at the Middle East. Do you realize that North Africa is also in Bible prophecy? Have you seen what's happened with, with Egypt and Libya and a lot of these nor all across North Africa? That puts us in very exciting times. And when I hear about this on the news, the hair on the back of my neck stands up because we're being plunged into a time period where we're, we're, we're coming into Bible prophecy time periods. And North Africa has pretty, pretty been mostly stable for many years. Things are starting to change. We don't know what type of hands these governments are going to fall into. We'll find out probably in the next few months or years. So it's very interesting. Nonsense, I'll get to that another time. A lot of nonsense out there. Two, our lives are running out. When we're born, when we're, uh, when we're brought into this world, we're already starting the time clock of dying. Because all the way back into Genesis, part of the curse of sin was that our bodies would die. But inside, we're eternal. The Apostle Paul says that the uh, inward man is being renewed day by day, but the outward man is perishing. And if, especially if you're my age or older, you're noticing that you're not in your 20s anymore. And the things you try to do, your body lets you know, hey, back off. We need a break here. So we know that. Um, 
Some will die sooner, some will die later. Some die unexpectedly at a young age. And the truth is, and I say this at funerals, we often prepare for life, but we don't prepare for death. I say this at funerals. So if you go on a plane and you're going to go across the seas and you're going to be there for any length of time, what do you take? You take luggage. When you have a test and you want to do well and you want to get a good grade, what do you do? Hopefully you're studying, right? If you play sports and that's your thing and you want to compete against other athletes who are training, what do you do? You train. But a lot of folks don't prepare for death. And that's a shame because that's the most important thing. That's where we'll spend for the most amount of time than anything we can spend on this earth. It's eternity. Verse 5, they made light of it, went their ways, one to a farm, another to a business. They were, dis- they were disinterested. They were too busy. The world makes light of it as well. The world talks about success, success. You know, just keep going, keep going. It's really a distraction from the things of God. In Matthew 24, Jesus is going to speak about the days that, the, that are going to be where the Lord is going to come back for his people. That it's going to be like the days of Noah, before the flood. Who is marrying, who is getting married, who is in business, who is carrying on with their lives. And the Lord will just take them. You know, two, two men will be uh, working in the field. One man will be taken, the other one will be left. Two women grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other one left. We're getting closer and closer to that time period. And there's really a lot of encouragement here. There's really a lot of encouragement. And I'll say this, that one of Satan's best tools or his most effective tools on believers is discouragement. I meet a lot of discouraged believers and they don't realize how much God loves them and they don't realize how much God wants to use them. But one of his most effective tools on unbelievers, because he's got different arsenals in his little, uh, little, in his bag of tricks. He's got different tools that he takes out. For unbelievers who are really being drawn by the word, what he teaches them is where he tries to put in their minds is there's time. Maybe later in life. Maybe when I'm done with college. Maybe when I uh, retire. And sometimes that tomorrow never happens. So be, be wary of that. Maybe it's time to come up today and receive the Lord. And you're being told in your mind or you have thoughts that, no, today's not the day. Today is the day. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Verse 7. So what happens here? But the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Well, this could be a direct uh, reference to what happened in Jerusalem in A.D. 0070. It's all a historical fact. Uh, But either way, the Lord won't take kindly to that rejection of his way of salvation. Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Some think that they're not worthy and they can't come to the cross. That's not true. According to this parable, the only ones who are not worthy is when God uh, bestows his overtures of love on you, and you say, I don't want it. Repeated, repeated, repeated. You make yourself unworthy. That's an act of your free will. It's not because God looks down on anybody. He loves us all equally and individually. To reject his love and nothing else is the way to become unworthy. And verse 10, I love this. Evangelism, preaching the gospel, the way of salvation, calls both the bad and the good, and that is striking. 
the bad and the good. And I've had this discussion. If you look at the so-called continuum between I'm a good person and I'm a bad person, there's no bright line division. Well, I, I steal, I murdered once, but I don't talk about people and I'm faithful to my wife. Okay, where does that put me? Well, the other person is unfaithful to their wife, but they've never done anything else wrong, and they said they were sorry for that. So what you start is you start having this continuum, but there's no bright line that says where a good person is and where a bad person is. There's the fallacious argument of those who try to get to heaven on their good works. And according to this, both the bad and the good are called and evangelized. They have to be, okay? Those that are generally good, if you read the book of Romans, the Bible's very clear that God is perfect and he demands perfection. And if, the, uh, if God is, is you know, up in heaven and, and there's a, ch a chain with links, so to speak, and we're holding on to that chain on the bottom, it only takes one of those links to break. It only takes one sin for us to be eternally separated from God. That's why God had to send his son into the world to die for his sin, a substitutionary death, okay? Now, the irony is, in Jesus' day, the bad started flooding into the kingdom of heaven, right? Jesus said the kingdom of heaven suffers violent, and the violent are forcefully advancing. They take it by force. It was a beautiful time where Jesus rejoiced that the harlots and the tax collectors and all the outcasts of society were getting into heaven. And Jesus said, to make matters worse, over the, over the spiritual leaders, he said, they're getting into heaven before you guys, and some of you guys aren't even getting in because you're hypocrites. So this is the beauty, that sometimes those who are, they look at their lives and they're honest about themselves and say, man, I'm, I'm messed up. I'm, I'm really a sinner. Well, that's, that's, that's the time that God is, is thrilled because you see yourself and you know you have a need for a savior. But sometimes the good, according to ourselves or society, we're deceived in thinking, I don't need a savior, I'm just fine. And that's not true. See, God doesn't consult Gallup or Barna or Pew Research before he makes a decision whether he likes us or not. He has to consult his eternally existent word and his law. And if we break the law, we need a savior. What is, now, and I've done this before. Um, I've had problems with preachers who come up and I think they have impure motives to get certain things from the body. And they always teach a happy message every Sunday morning and they won't mention sin or hell or the blood of Christ or the cross. But my, I also have a problem with the other extreme. You know, going up on a soapbox in the middle of New York City screaming everybody's going to hell is not really the way to help people to understand the love of God. Yes, there is a hell. Okay, but none of us have to go there. It's that simple. God calls the whole world because he loves us. He loves the rebellious world. He loves when a sinner can get into heaven and they choose Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that's my goal, to, to paint a balanced picture of what's going on here in the heavenlies. Verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Now this is fascinating. The whole world is called. John 3.16 tells us that. But few are chosen. However, the chosen seem to be chosen based on the choice of the one chosen. Sounds like a riddle, doesn't it? Well, we'll talk about that. 
Now let's look at this. Number one, the custom of the day, and it's great if you get a book on Hebrew customs or Greek culture, and Jesus is speaking in that time period, it really helps us to open up the door of a better understanding of what he's talking about. What's this wedding garment? Why does everybody have to wear the same thing? Well, in those days, the person who was hosting the wedding or the, uh, the parents of the ones getting married would give out all these garments to the guests. And everyone had literally the same garment that they would put on. And you couldn't really come to the wedding unless you had that garment. It was your choice to put it on. So this man had a choice. The king wasn't being mean to him. So once we understand the customs, this stuff really starts to come alive to us. Two, the king addresses him as friend. I love to go back into the original language, friend, comrade, pal. The king wanted him to be there in that feast, probably hoping he had an excuse. But he, like maybe I wasn't given one. In that case, untie the man and give him a garment. Sorry about that. Come on into the feast. But that didn't happen. Which leads to number three. The man without the garment was speechless. Okay, he didn't even have a good reason. He couldn't defend himself. In the context of scripture, this is very interesting. By our wills, by our talents and our abilities, we can't get to heaven. Our wills will not get us into heaven. However, by our wills and our determination and our doggedness and sometimes our abilities and talents, we keep ourselves from the kingdom. And that was the case with this man without the garment. We can't do it on our own. Now, this opens up the door for those of you who are more advanced in the scripture and with this... this quandary that some have between, well, God is sovereign, he has ultimate control, he could do whatever he wants, but then man is a free moral agent, we all have free will, and in a sense, we really have some power as free moral agents. So how do you rectify God's uh, sovereignty with man's free will? And it's very simple, and I've heard this illustration, I'd love to steal it, but I'm sure most of you have heard it before, so I can't take it. So if I'm coming up to the door that says heaven, right, there's also a part of it that says free choice. And as I open the door, and I'm into heaven, oh, the marriage feast, isn't this a lot of fun? I close the door, and I saw something on the back of the door, and it said, chosen from the foundations of the world. So there you go. God has called us. He's called many. Uh, but we also have the uh, ability to choose his love or reject it. And he knows who is going to be chosen and who is not going to be chosen. Now, what did I miss in this whole thing? Is there anything that I missed? Okay, we done with the parable. Are there any symbols that I forgot? How about the wedding garment? I saved the best for last. The wedding garment is the most important in this whole parable. Can anybody, if you want to call out, you can. What do you think the wedding garment represents? Okay. All right. If you look at the Old Testament... There was a, a, a spiritual illustration about the garments. There would be the robe of righteousness. The priest would be clothed in some of these things or the uh, garment of salvation. So you see that concept all the way back into the Old Testament. Now, as we go through, we know that Habakkuk 2.4 says, the just shall live by faith, those who are justified. Now, Ephesians 2, let me just continue on here. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is a really great picture. And it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So really what we see is the righteousness of Christ. When Christ went to the cross, I'll tell you for me personally, and many of you here, he took all the sins that separate me from God, he took them upon himself, and he, he buried them there. 
And then when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. I have to have that garment on because I can't get into heaven without that garment. Otherwise, it's of my own, you know, my own doing, my own abilities, and that's a very unfair system. And I'll give you an illustration because um, I just love science. And if you ever watch like, some of these science channels, when you deal with lightning, there's like potential energy up in a storm. And the lightning is just looking for a certain connection to make before it could send 30,000 amps down to the ground and it could release it. And I've seen this. They'll take a, a rocket with a, a long, uh, thin metal line and it's, it's coiled for hundreds of maybe a thousand feet. And at the end of that line are instruments that read lightning. So what they do is they send up the rocket. It's really cool during a storm, but they don't stand real close to it. And uh, once it gets to a certain altitude, it makes that connection between the 30,000 amps of power and the ground where all that equipment is, is, is waiting. I look at God's storehouse of grace as that, that potential energy up there. He's just wants us, he just wants to shower us with grace. Starting, number one, with salvation, with that peace that surpasses all understanding, with the ability to have fellowship with him and for him to solve our problems and to help us to walk a good path. But you know what? That that line that has to connect the two has got to be faith. We do have to believe that Jesus, number one, did die for our sins, that he, that is a substitutionary death, that he is the son of God. And then when that connection is made, that storehouse of grace is just showered upon us. And most of us, all of us, when we really understand salvation, ask ourselves, why did I not do this sooner? Right? So that's pretty great. So that wedding garment, boy, we have to have that on. A few understandings we can get from this is that the wedding garment makes us all equal. It looked the same for every person. So if we all today were going to this feast, we would all look the same in what we were wearing. I don't get a fancier one than anybody else, and that's a good thing. See, when we get to heaven, we get to enjoy to relax from the rat race. In this world, unfortunately, we still deal with jealousy. Even in the church, there's jealousy. There's others looking at you, and you might get blessed, and they may have a problem with that, and there's this constant comparison. But the wedding garment represents that we're all equal. You ever deal with somebody who's just jealous of you, and you're just minding your own business? It's like, can you get a life and not be in my life all the time? Right? So we get, we get a rest and a relaxation from that. And check this out. The man who comes into the wedding garment is likened to a person who tries to get to God through his own works. Everybody else has the garment. This guy doesn't have one on. He put on what he wanted. He looks different, right? It's his way to try to get to God any other way but through the cross. And the Bible's clear what the punishment is for that. It doesn't work. So it goes to show us that laying down our wills and trusting the Lord is what it's going to take to get us into that wedding feast. Many are called, John 3.16, a clarion call, but few are chosen. We can look at chosen. We can look at, it also can mean the choice. Uh, we, if we look at the election, God's election, his election, according to 1 Peter, is according to his foreknowledge. God already knows who's going to choose him. Right? And we, we did that illustration of the door. Verse 15, as we continue. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And then they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Hmm. Two groups at the time, the Pharisees. 
They were religious leaders, but they were conservative. They actually, probably in their hearts, absolutely did not want the Jewish people to pay taxes to Rome. They had a real problem with Roman occupation. Uh, they were very meticulous in their handling of the law. Very interesting to see these two groups come together. The Herodians were really vassals of Rome. They had some Jewish lineage, and the Romans allowed them to rule over the Jewish people. So they kind of played both sides of the fence, and in their hearts they knew that their Romans, the Romans were their bread and butter, so they probably didn't really have a problem with the whole tax issue. So here they, they go, and they dump this question. It's a loaded question on Jesus. Now, what do they do? What do we see? There's a lot of flattery in here. Oh, you're so great. You know, Jesus, you don't, you don't worry about what men think. You're really a, a righteous teacher. They were just looking to set him up. Because if he said the wrong thing, uh, if he said we should pay taxes, then basically the Jews would have said, no, you're not the Messiah. And they would have had their problem solved. If he would have said, yeah, sure, we should pay taxes, uh, or, or we shouldn't pay taxes, then they would have had him reported to the authorities, and he would have been arrested. Okay, so either way, they were trying to trap him. And you've got to watch for manipulation. You know, you have to see the torpedo coming in the water towards your ship when people start to flatter you and build you up, and they lead you with a question. Okay, flattery is never good in the scripture. Verse uh, 17 and 18, so they ask him whether they should pay taxes to Caesar or not. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? He knew what they were thinking, and he knew they were trying to trap him. In verse 19, last few verses that we're going to cover today, Jesus says, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Image and inscription. So, any country you go to, um, if there's a sovereign, if there's a potentate, if there's a, a, an autonomous king who rules absolutely, if you look at the days of the Caesars and they minted the certain money for the Roman government and the, Rome, and the people of Rome, and there would be you know, a, a metal coin with a picture of one of the Caesars, a, an, inscript, or a, an image, and also an inscription, probably something said in Latin depending on the, the size of the money, etc. Uh, they put whatever they wanted to put on there, and Jesus said, let me see that. Well, that's Caesar's. Give it back to him. Now, very interesting because we, especially as... Okay, let's go back to the beginning in Genesis. We are made in the image of God. So we, in a sense, also have an image and an inscription. And after the fall and after sin, that image was marred. We don't look so much like him anymore in a lot of ways. However, through Jesus, he came to restore that image again. So in a sense, as believers, we have the image of God uh, emboldened or emblazoned onto us, but we also have the inscription. In John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll follow my word. If you don't love me, you won't. That really should be our, our inscription, shouldn't it be? What does Jesus say? Do we, do we really love Jesus? Well, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll follow my word. Are we following his word? I like to ask those who are of really a very nominal belief system as believers, and they don't read the Bible, and I say, I pose John 14 to them. I, I say, you know, I want to be in the proper group of those that love Jesus. But if you're not reading your Bible and you don't know the word and you're not going to a church that discerns the word, how do you know what his word is to follow it to see if you really love him or not? Simple logic, isn't it? So the truth is, we also have an image and an inscription on us. And the truth is, we also have a dual citizenship. And this will go back to the marriage feast. We're citizens of the earth and we're also citizens of heaven. 
And I'll tell you that if you find a person that's constantly rebellious to any authority, whether it be the parents or the government or the laws or their church or whatever, I will show you the same person that really doesn't follow and, o- and obey Christ because that's that rebellious nature that they have in them. So we're bo- supposed to be a dual citizenship, number one, of the earth. There are some that are great citizens of the earth because they want everything the earth has to offer, but they're not good citizens of heaven. And then there are those that are probably good citizens of heaven. They leave, lead a pretty good life, but they're really not good citizens of the earth. They're really not concerned about everyone else who's not saved. And by default, they can't be great citizens of heaven. So as we look at this today, we want to be both. But my caution is to believers who get so caught up in citizens of the earth that they forget that they're citizens of heaven. Remember, for us to get into that wedding feast, we have to have that garment of Christ. We have to have, the Bible says, the fragrance of Christ. We should exude Christ. If we go out into a situation that's not any way related to our church brothers and sisters, would anybody know there was anything different about us? Satan will try to deceive us as believers to say, well, look at the world that has so much to offer for you. Well, Satan tried to do that to our leader, Jesus, didn't he? And he rejected that. He says, that's all going to be mine anyway. I don't have to go through you. God's eventually going to give it to me. If we really trust the Lord, we know that God has such incredible things prepared for us that we don't even realize So my desire today is for us to understand that we need to come in with that wedding garment, that that it is through faith in in him, it is through laying down our will and trusting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that that grace will will be bestowed upon us. And to really trust that God has a lot better things prepared for us than the world does. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we just love your word. We love your parables. I could see Jesus saying things plainly, and they didn't get it.